Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hi everyone, welcome back. Today my guest is Jennifer Fugo and we're talking all about chronic skin rashes. So for those who don't know who Jennifer is, she's a clinical nutritionist who empowers women who have been failed by conventional medicine to beat chronic skin and unending gut challenges. Because she's overcome a long history of gut issues and eczema, Jennifer has empathy and insight to help her clients discover missing pieces and create doable, integrated plans. Simply put, Jennifer believes that you deserve better. That's why she launched Skinterrupt.com, the interrupt that filled the conversation about chronic skin problems with helpful alternatives that you aren't being told. She holds a master's in human nutrition from the University of Bridgeport and is a licensed dietitian nutritionist and certified nutrition specialist. Her work has been featured in many places, Dr. Oz, Reuters, Yahoo, CNN, many podcasts and summits. She is the faculty member of Learn Skin Platform, an Amazon best-selling author and the host of The Healthy Skin Show, which is a podcast that I personally love listening to. So welcome to the podcast, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me here. I really appreciate it. It's so exciting. I know. It's lovely to chat with you. Um, You've been on my list of guests, hopeful guests for a while now because we were talking before and I said I've covered little bits on skin issues, mainly acne, but I needed an expert on things like psoriasis, eczema, and you were my go-to person. So I'm glad that you accepted to come on. Absolutely. It is my pleasure to talk about these types of things because I feel like there's not a lot of hope that people have, no matter whether they're still like just doing only the dermatologist thing or when they come out of that and realize, hey, there are some other options. I think people hit walls where they're just like, I don't know what else to do because diet alone isn't working the way that maybe it worked for Sally on this Facebook group. And I just, I'm losing hope. Maybe I am stuck like this. And so it's a big deal to me to be able to share my story and my experience to help remind people that you're not doomed and there are other options out there. And please do start with your story because you, you became a practitioner because of your own struggles. So that is amazing. And that makes the practitioner even better in my opinion. So yeah, please give us an overview. You can take as long as you want. So I'm sure it's been a bit of a journey. Well, I will say that my journey started not because of my skin, more so because I had really bad diarrhea, headaches, gas, and bloating, uh, brain fog and such in my, I would say like started in my like early to mid twenties. Um, I had headaches for a long time. So that's not entirely true. It got really bad in my mid-20s. I always had diarrhea and I always had headaches, especially in high school. Um, I was taking Tylenol every single day. And 
eventually I came to discover that I had a bunch of food sensitivities. That was sort of the initial foray into this whole like, oh, there's something outside of, you know, the conventional way we look at our health. And I had, that was a really new eye-opening experience because my dad is a doctor. Well, he was a doctor. He passed away earlier this year. So I should say was, and you know, I was always exposed to conventional medicine and antibiotics and things of that nature whenever you had a problem. And so realizing that there was this whole new connection to food was incredibly eye-opening. And so I dove into that. Um, I became a health coach at the time and worked with clients, predominantly those who had GI issues, but a lot who had celiac disease. Because I just had a knack at helping explain to them, like, here's the steps you need to take in order to remove gluten from your life and make reasonable changes. Um, and so I got a lot of clients that way. But with time, I felt like the diet changes just weren't significant enough. They weren't enough to really help someone whose diarrhea, for example, was incredibly persistent. And there was a time and a place for some supplements, but that was beyond my scope of practice. And so I decided to go back to school to become a clinical nutritionist and go for a master's degree. And in the middle of the master's degree was when eczema like reared its, oh, its ugly head. Um, and showed up on my hand. It first started on one hand. Um, it started on the inside of my one middle finger. And at first it was just these little, it looked like these little clear beads underneath the surface of the skin. And I noticed it, but I didn't think anything of it. And then as this, the uh, summer months wore on and it got hotter and, and more humid where I live, those beads became incredibly itchy. And with time, they would burst. The skin would become incredibly red and inflamed, and then it would sort of like dry up after it would flake off, and that cycle would start over and over again. And then with each cycle, the rash would spread. And so it started moving from that one patch and all the way down to my fingers, onto my palms, it went onto the other hand. And before you knew it, I, I could not figure out what was going on. I was having a really hard time functioning because it's not the back of my hands that it so much compromised, though it did start to move onto the back of the fingers, but the palm of my hands. And we take for granted the amount of times that we touch surfaces to open a door, to hold a glass, to wash dishes, to cook, to do anything. Um, I started to really lose the capacity to, <laughs> to do just basic things. And so I went to the dermatologist after doing a lot of Google searching and realized that I had dyshidrotic eczema and she agreed. And the only solution given to me was topical steroids and Vaseline, which I know, like I'm going to say that I would not be a big fan of putting Vaseline on an open wound because it's a petrochemical derivative and yada, yada, yada. But doctors say, well, you know, it's not really going to hurt the body. There's plenty of research. Okay, that's great. But just from a practical standpoint, if we put all that aside, having Vaseline all over your hands is utterly impractical. And so I would go through these stages where the summer times would be miserable of really red, itchy, unbearably burning hot skin um, to the winter time where the skin would dry out and be so thin and brittle that if I just bent my fingers, I could feel the skin separating within those joint areas. And if I put my hands under water, it would even, it would just, it didn't matter whether it was the, the winter or the summer, it would just burn. So water, I became afraid to touch water. So I couldn't even wash my hands. So now I'm wearing gloves all the time. Um, I would wake up in the middle of the night, scratching my hands to, to like death to pieces. And I, 
I got to the point where I just thought maybe I shouldn't be like doing this. I don't think maybe the stress of school or whatever is causing all of these problems. And so eventually my husband was like, no, you have to look at this from a different way. And that's really where my journey began of inquiring why these skin issues would happen because the dermatologist had no idea. She's like, well, maybe it's just genetics. Maybe you're just prone. You know, maybe you're just sensitive to something. Like I changed everything out in my for laundry detergent, my body lotions and creams and everything. And I had already been gluten-free and dairy-free and egg-free for six years before this happened. So when people are like, oh, gluten will fix you. I'm like, "Mm, I was already gluten-free. I was already dairy-free. I was already egg-free and I still got eczema. So I, I began to realize that there's a lot of misconceptions and myths around what drives skin issues and what also causes flares, and then also to learning to balance the alternative with the conventional route, because I think there's a time and a place for both, um, and, and then also being honest about how effective diet can be. And maybe when it doesn't work, (laughs) what do you do? Um, And so I was over the course of a year, and I think that's important for everyone to hear. It took me a year to get my eczema to finally go away, to get my nails, which had become disfigured, to grow back out correctly. And, um, you know, I have had a few flares here and there, but they have typically been tied to underlying issues that it was almost like a sign. My body was trying to tell me, hey, there's something internal that is going on that you need to pay attention to. So now I view eczema when it does pop up as a friend. It's a reminder of I need to look internal. I need to see what is off balance or off kilter that I need to, to pay some attention to. Um, and so I started my practice and began just getting clients from my telling my story about skin. And that was really how my practice really started um, about three years ago. And since then, you know, started the Healthy Skin Show. And um, yeah, so. And here you are now. now. <laughs> and yeah, probably like in the moment, I've had this many times where you're like, I shouldn't be doing this. I'm meant to be like the healthiest person that I know. Right. I'm the one who's struggling. Everyone else is like perfect skin and seemingly no problems at all, but a lot of them do have maybe chronic anxiety, chronic digestive issues. So why do you think it is for some people it's the skin that's affected? Is it that genetic predisposition? Um, and could you talk about the, the connection with the environment? So genetics versus epigenetics. Yeah, so genetics is just one piece. It's just one piece. Um, there is a specific gene called filaggrin that it produces a protein called filaggrin. And it's almost like, you could think of it as like mortar mix between your cells. So if your cells look like a brick wall, it's the mortar mix that helps keep the skin barrier nice and tight. And so some people, some people do have a snip in their filaggrin gene. But then the question is, what happens to the rest of the people who don't, right? A lot of people have eczema. A lot of people have psoriasis. Like, so I want to be clear too, even though my journey was with eczema, I do work with people who have all different types of skin rash issues. And so we see this skin barrier degradation happen in a lot of different skin rash conditions. And so an interesting thing as I've talked to dermatologists and doctors and researchers and done my own reading is that internal inflammation, and it can happen somewhere else in the body, actually dysregulates the filaggrin gene. 
So does it necessarily matter? Does it, should it concern you like to go get checked to see if you have this genetic SNP? The answer that every dermatologist I've ever asked is no. Because the problem is, if you have internal inflammation, which we know, especially with like eczema, for example, it's an, inflama- it's an inflammatory driven disease, so to speak, um, that's going to wreck the production of healthy filaggrin protein. And if you don't have good mortar mix holding the brick wall together, what do you expect to happen? So that is one thing that was very eye-opening to me was to say, okay, so a lot of these conditions are driven by inflammation that's generated elsewhere. And so that means that genetics can't be the end-all be-all of a root cause. And that's where I generated this 16 root cause list that I generally um, kind of assess every client by. Um, And so I'll just run through the list uh, quickly so that people can have a sense of like how, how many other things are going on here aside from genes and food. So diet and food reactions are one of the 16 but they're one of the 16. So if you haven't gotten, if you haven't felt a benefit from just changing your diet or doing a specific diet protocol, this is the reason why there's other factors at play. And so we have issues like microbiome dysbiosis. That can happen. There's many different microbiomes in the body. The gut is a significant one, as is the skin, but we have a microbiome in our mouth. We have microbiomes everywhere. Gut dysfunction certainly an issue. How often do you poop? Are you belching? Are you burping? Do you have bloating, etc.? Nutritional deficiencies is a big problem. Liver detox challenges. And when I say that, I specifically, you well, for me, I usually focus on phase two liver detox. Um, trauma and unmanaged stress, uh, thyroid dysfunction, hormone imbalances. And when I say that, I mean like blood sugar imbalances, sex hormone imbalances, that kind of thing. Autoimmunity, drug reactions, heavy metals, environmental toxins, and environmental allergies. Those are the 16 that I really assess. And I also want to say too, because I know you and I have had a little bit of back and forth about parasites. Parasites can certainly be an issue with the body as a whole. So you could have parasites in your GI tract, but they also can migrate and be someplace else. So I consider parasites and and mold, for example, can produce toxins um, that can suppress your immune system and make it a lot easier for parasites or H. pylori or other infections to kind of take root. And so a lot of times people just say, oh, I have this one diagnosis. And that's a mistake because you usually don't just have one thing. If you have H. pylori, H. pylori, H. pylori, usually as my one colleague, Krista Bigler says, brings friends along with it. And so it's not uncommon for someone to go, oh, I treated my H. pylori, but I still don't feel well. It's because there's other things going on. Or I have SIBO, but I'm working on my SIBO and I'm not getting better. Well, is it possible you have H. pylori? Is it possible you have other issues going on? So we always want to take a wider 2,000 foot view of the body, of the whole health history to really assess what the actual issues are, because out of that 16, most people have somewhere of like a three to five unique combo. So that explains why if, um, you know, Susie in the Facebook group swears that by changing her diet, it alleviated her of her psoriasis or her eczema or whatever, but then you try it and either it makes you worse or you don't feel any better and you're like, am I broken? why doesn't this work for me? All these people said if I took gluten out or if I removed dairy or if I got rid of eggs, I would be better and I'm not. Maybe I'm even worse. And the reason is that 
maybe for them, that was their, one of their main issues, but for you, it might not be. And so that's why you always want to address your case from that unique standpoint. It's great to have ideas from other people, but don't assume that their solutions will be your solutions. Absolutely. And side tangent, it seems like you're maybe not a fan of Facebook groups with like <laughs> skin, skin issues. Could you talk a little bit about your, your thoughts on them? Yeah, I think positives and negatives, obviously. Yes, I think that they're great for support. You know, that was one of the reasons why I actually started Skinterrupt because when I, I was still in those Facebook groups and when I would see the photos that people would share of their faces or their children, I thought to myself, I can't, I can't like just have this information and not share it because it doesn't seem right. That, that to me is just hoarding important information that other people should have. And it also has the capacity as we as a whole. So as the patients become better educated, we can start asking better questions. We can st start demanding better um, and more current scientific findings to be utilized in the exam room. But if you don't know, then you're, you're just left with, here's a steroid cream. That's all you mm -hmm. have or a biologic drug. And that's not always quite the case. I mean, those things can be helpful. I, I'm sort of drug agnostic. I, I don't judge anyone for whatever they choose to use on their journey. It's unique. I think that's where the Facebook groups tend to become problematic is that people can judge your way or what you're using. I've seen people ganged up on. Um, I've also seen very inappropriate advice being given to people, especially around diet. It's very dangerous. And I want to be very clear. I think it's important that we support people. It's important we encourage people. Um, it's important that we're there for people and they know that they're not alone. But if you have gone online to a Facebook group and you are just pushing people to eliminate more and more foods from their diet and you are not a professional, right, that is a dangerous thing to do. And here's why. As we slowly eliminate more foods from our diet, you reduce your, the, the nutrient diversity that your body has access to. You don't know what is going on with that person's health status to begin with. And so by encouraging them to take more and more out, now there's less nutrients. There may be less fiber depending on what, what you're encouraging them to do and then what they actually take action on and do in their daily life that they're capable of. And so a lot of times we then develop food fear as a result of seeing all of these people push these very, very restrictive diets. I've worked with people that have done AIP, low salicylate, no sugar, no gluten, no dairy, no eggs. Um, vegan, carnivore, carnivore is the new thing. Mm. And the problem is that people who have done this a lot of times are so afraid to eat anything that is off of the ranch, so to speak, of what they're comfortable with, that they develop orthorexia, which is a, a very disordered eating pattern. And it becomes difficult then for them to reintroduce foods. Or when they try to, because of removing the foods, they actually develop and oral intolerance. And so I'm not saying this to cast blame on anyone who has done this and is struggling right now. I want you to just understand where you're at. So oral intolerance to foods is a real thing. And so the key is then saying, okay, how did this start in the first place? We want to unravel that, work on that. And then slowly I've found that 
I'm usually able to get clients to reintroduce a lot of foods as their system rebalances and they're able to, they're just able to handle, you know, being exposed to salicylates, for example. Um, I, I don't, you know, people are like, I have to do a low salicylate diet. I'm like, unless you have some sort of genetic impairment or a legitimate allergic reaction to them, if you can't handle salicylates, which are in a lot of healthy foods, it's an indication that your liver, specifically phase two detox is compromised on the glycine pathway, which is where salicylates are processed. So while yes, it might seem intelligent to take salicylate foods out, you're limiting the amount of nutrients you can get from very healthy foods. And the solution is actually improving your B6 status along with taking glycine because your body needs those two in order to process those things. So this is where the mistake comes in thinking the diet alone will fix everything. And, and that's the, the one big problem I have with a lot of these groups is the, the pushiness, especially when people are struggling, you're not, and don't diagnose people, don't tell them what they have. You know, that's really, you should encourage them to go to their doctor if they need a diagnosis, because you know what? I've had some clients where their hives were actually a sign of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so you telling them that you just have hives, you just need to do this diet, you just need to do low histamine is not helpful. They need mm -hmm. to go to their doctor and find out what's actually going on. And had I not encouraged my one client to do so, she wouldn't know that. Yeah. So it, remember that we all have a time and a place. Like I'm not a doctor, I don't diagnose. And so it's again, a Facebook group is meant to support. It's not, you're not there to diagnose people. You're not there to give them guidance or pressure them into doing what you're doing because it worked for you. Exactly. And even health professionals like us, we can't diagnose like you just said. So again, Sally on Facebook group, she might've had like wonderful results and has found some answers for herself, but you can't just put that onto someone else. No. So I also feel like a lot of them are very like negative, um, a lot of like complaining and kind of um, keeping that low energy vibe going on. Um, so I'm not a fan either. And I've made a lot of those mistakes that you just mentioned with the restrictions in diet. Um, because I was, I was physically reacting though to the foods, mm -hmm. but I ultimately found out that I had mold illness. So the food wasn't the problem. I was right. exposed to toxic mold and that was making my body very reactive, mast cell yeah. activation syndrome, mm -hmm. all of that. So I was eliminated. I think I was eating like probably five foods at one point. Mm -hmm. um, I'd restricted dairy and gluten, eggs, salicylates, histamines, nightshades, oxalates, pretty much everything that you can think of. And the food lists online, I would just like put them side by side oh. and then highlight the things that were, weren't, were on each one. So I would have to avoid it. So yeah, could you talk a bit more about the other potential root causes of multiple food sensitivities and how you would get someone um, to expand their diet and overcome that food fear? Yeah, I think one of the big factors that you always have to assess is the gut function first. Um, I always start with gut function and liver detox because I have a really great graphic that I made that I shared on Instagram that is this like pyramid because a lot of people, they make the mistake of starting too high up. So for example, if they're like, oh, well, I have, I think it's my hormones. And I'm like, okay, but your hormones are not foundational. There are other things that dictate how hormones, for example, are converted and eliminated and all sorts of things. So you have to deal with those first. And the first two is always gut function and uh, phase two liver detox. 
So let's talk a little bit about liver detox because I think it's important. So what I'm not advocating here is doing a liver cleanse. I just want to be very clear about that. That's one big mistake. People are like, I'm going to take all this milk thistle and I'm going to do this liver cleanse. And my liver is going to be great. So with skin issues, a lot of no times- No medical that can medium, make... celery juice it. <laughs> no. So a lot of times the liver detox kits and programs can actually make skin issues worse. Um, one reason why, well, there's two reasons. So first off, you have to understand that liver detox happens in phases. There are actual phases. The first part is tends to be dictated by genetics. Uh, it's called the CYP450 uh, system. And so genes, there are, food can upregulate or downregulate. So speed up or slow down how those genes decide what happens to toxins and things of that nature. Um, so like caffeine, for for example, will upregulate or fa- make phase one go faster. So sometimes people who react to caffeine, I'm like, well, that could be a sign that phase one's going too fast and you're getting this backup between phase one and phase two, because between those two phases is a wait. I like to call it a waiting room. And so, you know, if you go to the doctor's office or you go to the hospital, there's only so many chairs there and, you know, they've got to have a good patient flow from the front of the office to the back of the office in order to keep things moving. Well, phase two requires very specific nutrients. I mentioned one pathway is called the glycine pathway, which requires glycine and B6. There's also a glutathione pathway. There's a bunch of different pathways, sulfation. Um, so we need nutrients to make those pathways happen. And as the nutrient supplies become smaller and smaller, which by the way, it's also critical to know we don't make most of these nutrients. Our body can make glutathione, but that process can also become compromised if we again don't have the the building blocks to do so, or we have difficulty recycling glutathione. So it's really important that we have, you know, this goes back to why it's not a good idea to get on these really uber restrictive diets because it increases the chance or likelihood that you are going to end up with low levels of nutrients that your liver needs for phase two. So all of a sudden it's like not having enough technicians, not having enough doctors to man phase two. Like when you go back into the weight, into the um, exam room. And so now patient flow slows down. So does this liver process. And so we have this over packed waiting room that these toxins are just sitting there. They need somewhere to go. And we start to see that show up through the skin and through other avenues because your body just like cannot deal with this. And so that's where I focus on supporting phase two liver detox. Phase three is actually tied to gut function because if you are constipated, so you're not having one to three bowel movements a day that are well-formed, that's a problem because we need to be eliminating out that pathway. But also there's another issue with liver detox in that a lot of the herbs that are used in formulas, if you are someone who has a lot of environmental allergies, specifically to pollens, so birch or grasses, um, not dander so much of pets. This is really specific to pollen. You can actually have a cross-reactive, essentially a confusion happen in your body where your body thinks that certain foods or herbs, for example, are that pollen. And so it begins to react to those items that are raw. So they're uncooked. When we cook those foods, like for example, stevia is one that people who have a um, ragweed allergy may have trouble with. 
if you probably put stevia in something hot or that was cooked, it probably won't be an issue anymore. But for example, with ragweed, milk thistle, dandelion root, all of these <laughs> wonderful phase two or liver detox herbs tend to be cross-reactive with this whole ragweed family. And if you are taking these raw herbs, you can be causing more histamine in your system. So I, I tend to focus more on nutrients and uh, amino acids to help support liver detox so that we keep someone out of that p- the potential for developing these sort of allergic issues. And as you, were, you even mentioned, histamine is not necessarily a great thing, especially if, say, you have an eczema that is his- histamine-driven. And so um, then we get into that gut function piece. So we want to make sure, as I said, one to three poops a day that we're getting either diarrhea slowed down so that you are having a much more comfortable uh, flow of things, or we're getting things sped up because you're, you're constipated because we need to get everything moving. And so those are really the first two places where I start. Um, As far as going higher up, it's really critical to assess if a person has enough nutrients in their body. If you don't, your body can only juggle so many balls. At a certain point, it's going to start dropping balls because it needs to prioritize. Skin is the lowest on the totem pole. And so unfortunately, if say, for example, you need those nutrients for your heart because your heart is going to keep you alive, it's going to prioritize your heart. It's going to prioritize your brain or your lungs or your kidneys over your skin. So we can walk around with these gaping wounds, but we can't walk around with a, a, a chronic heart problem for, for too long. And eventually, eventually we will, you know, we're going to have pretty dire consequences. So those are some big pieces. Um, the gut dysbiosis piece is a huge one. I like to definitely look there, evaluate for fungal organisms, bacterial organisms, um, parasitic organisms that really shouldn't be there, or if there's an overgrowth situation like SIBO or CIFO. Um, It's actually more common for people to have overgrowth, at least from looking at stool tests, to have like too much bacteria than too little, which is interesting given our like fear of antibiotics. I'm not pro-antibiotics, but I used to be against them. And now I'm just like, well, it depends. (laughs) It really depends. Yeah, I'm just neutral. I'm like, you know, it depends on your situation and the severity of your symptoms and what's going on with the case. Because if you are so sick as a result of like your rashes are so bad, you're so itchy, you can't sleep, you can't function, you know, you're just really bad, whatever your health situation is. If you have H. pylori, you might want to do the antibiotic route, the triple therapy, um, because it's faster. And so I think that's where we have to weigh things. It's nice to have this idea of like, these are bad. And yes, I understand the consequence that they have on your microbiome. But if you have a robust microbiome, if I'm depleted, I know from doing my own stool testing. So I have to be really careful with my antibiotic exposure more so than I can with other clients. And even the amount of time that I can use antimicrobials, I really have to do like, I'll do six weeks on and then a six week break with probiotics. And I oscillate between the two because my microbiome cannot handle a lot of 
pruning back. But some people can and actually need that. Too much can be a problem. Um, and so just looking for all of the different factors, um, environmental toxins, for example, as you said, mycotoxins and mold are a huge problem for a lot of people. That, and you don't have to see mold in order to have black mold in your home or in your car or in your place of work. Um, you know, fumes and, you know, there are certainly chem chemical sensitivities. And also being aware of what you put on your skin can be absorbed. I know here in the U.S., we're very lax about what we put in our products. And I know it's a lot more stringent in um, the UK and Europe, but it does matter. Our skin can absorb so much. Your skin can absorb biotin, vitamin A, vitamin E, magnesium, zinc. I mean, the list goes on. So if you think that your skin is not absorbing what is in the products you use on your skin or the chemicals you use in like laundry detergents and such, if it doesn't matter, it really, it really truly does. And one thing we both try to avoid on the skin or avoid recommending is coconut oil. Could you mm -hmm. talk a bit about that? Because from again, natural perspective, it's, it's extra virgin organic coconut oil. It's good to consume internally yeah. for some people, but what about externally? Why could it potentially be a problem? Yeah. So, um, so I'm so here's my feeling on coconut oil, and I'm just going to address the internal piece really quickly. So if you have a lot of E. coli, for example, like gram-negative E. coli, um, it they have found through research that it can actually increase the amount of lipopolysaccharides (LPS) that ends up in the gut, which is inflammatory. So a lot of times if I have someone on a protocol, at least the clients that I work with who have like eczema, psoriasis, rosacea, et cetera, or chronic gut issues, I'll usually tell them to avoid uh, like doing a scoop of coconut oil in a protein shake. If you want to cook with it, it's fine because you're not going to end up with that much, but I wouldn't do like a, a mega dose of it in a shake. However, as far as putting it on the skin, so again, this kind of depends. Um, with eczema, I think it's a hard pass. No coconut oil on your skin. I know some people find it to be helpful, but to be honest with you, the only time that I really think it's helpful is if it's the rash is more fungal in nature. Mm -hmm. And aside from that, it's too occlusive and too thick to really be absorbed well into the skin. Um, it's it just, and this is even from my experience, it makes your skin feel hot. It just sits on the skin. It's not very moisturizing and it's also very antimicrobial. So for someone like with eczema, for example, that really struggles with microbiome imbalances on the skin of overgrowth of staph and except and whatnot, it's it's like you're like leaving a vacuum for then the bad bugs to come in and take over. And so it's just, I've had a lot of clients who stopped using coconut oil after reading the article that's on my website and were like, my skin got so much better after I stopped using it. For psoriasis, it depends. Some people find it to be helpful. Others don't. I definitely don't recommend it for rosacea. Um, it, yeah. So it's very infrequent that I recommend coconut oil. I know that it is a wonderful thing and I'm not demonizing it. I don't have anything against it. Even like the, you know, the organic virgin coconut oil. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it per se. It's just, it's not the panacea of health that I think bloggers told us it was. I think the benefits were oversold and there are plenty of other really amazing oils out there that you can use or check out. Um, and I would also say too, because I think people might ask, well, if, I, if you look at your natural skincare ingredients, if coconut oil is, if you have eczema, you don't want to see coconut oil 
in the product. If you do, it should be like kind of at the bottom because that's the smallest possible amount that could potentially be in it. Um, but I, I just don't think that that's a really good oil to be in a product for people with eczema. And are there any like better oils or herbs that you can do topically or any brands that specialize um, in kind of sensitive rash yeah. skin? Yeah. So um, there's, I don't know any, I, I, and I'm forgetting the name. I don't know if it's Ballard's. I, there was one or I'm not remembering there's, I have a client in the UK and he had shared with me that he found one cream that he really loves. So I can send you the, the yeah. name of it. Um, he has, he has eczema. Um, in the U S like Osmia Organics is great. There's a lot of different companies that are now making products that are a lot cleaner and simpler formulas. Um, for anybody who has perioral dermatitis, it's a really different beast than eczema. Um, so you really have to approach that differently. And Osmia Organics makes like this black clay bar that has done wonders for a lot of people who have that particular issue. So you may want to check that out, see if it's available there, or maybe there's a company that makes something similar in the UK. Um, but as far as other oils are concerned, jojoba is great because it's very close to our sebum. Uh, hemp seed oil can be good for some people. Uh, avocado oil can sometimes be great for people. Um, some people find avocado or olive oil to be okay. Others don't. I've read that olive oil is not good to use if you have seborrheic dermatitis because that particular, the oleic oil or oleic acid is is it's too rich in that and it can cause issues. Um, I think it's really, you really have to just try things out and see what works for you. Shea butter can be an option. Um, emu oil is another great option, but it really depends on your skin. And I think one of the most critical pieces, if you're really, really super flared, I think this is important to know if you're very super flared, if you are super itchy, if your skin is kind of burning, it's super red, go see a doctor. Stop trying to manage that with natural things. It's highly likely that you have some sort of infection on your skin, either a staph infection, could also be a strep infection as well. Um, I've had some clients had strep and I was like, what? It wasn't staph? They're like, no, it was strep. I was like, okay. Um, you need antibiotics at that point and you have to be very careful if you have like containers or pots where you're scooping um, the, the, the creams out that recontamination or contamination can be a problem. And so as you scoop out, maybe you have an overgrowth of staph on your skin normally with eczema, you can be causing staph to grow inside your products. And as you continue to apply them, you're now adding more and more staph to your skin, which can then eventually add to a, or create a staph infection. So you have to be really careful that you know, you're using clean hands when you remove products from their containers. And that if you have, you've got to get to know what an infect what a, a skin infection actually is. It is different from a flare. And I have had a lot of clients who were suffering for months and months on end. And our first appointment, I said, I think you need to go to the doctor to get a culture done. Can you go ask for a culture? And they were shocked. It came back as staff. I wasn't. And then they're afraid to use the antibiotics. And I'm like, you need antibiotics. This is not something you mess with. You need antibiotics in order to improve your skin barrier function because of the damage that skin uh, staff causes um, and to get some relief and be more comfortable. 
And just for anyone to know this, that you can have staph infections and other skin infections with other skin conditions. It's not just eczema. I've had clients with psoriasis who've had staph infections. So it is very important to educate yourself what the symptoms are and stop assuming it's just a flare. You can go to the doctor and say, I want a culture run. And the culture will look for whatever is growing on the skin. If there's an overgrowth, the doctor can help you. Yeah, I told you earlier that I had a client with acne and it was a staph infection and she was she was thinking it was just a detox. She's like, I just need to push through it, it'll be fine. I can keep going. I'm like, please don't, you're gonna you're gonna regret doing that. Yeah. And especially too, if God forbid the staff, if you end up with wounds and the mm-hmm. staff then gets access to your yeah, bloodstream, it's exactly. not something to mess with. And it makes, can you imagine just for a second, if, if you're listening to this and you're really miserable right now, how you, like, you just want relief. That's literally how you're like, please make it stop, you know? And, and so then we put up these barriers of like what we're not willing to do or what we think it is because we want to manage on our own. And I understand like you've been frustrated with your doctor in the past. If you don't like your current doctor, find a different one. Ask, you know, ask a Facebook group online. That's a great thing to ask a Facebook group. Hey, does anybody have a doctor, a dermatologist in my area or my city or whatever that maybe is more open-minded and will work with me? Um, that would be a good use of a Facebook group. Um, but there's a time and a place for medications and you don't want to mess with a skin infection. There's not much that's beyond my scope of practice. And I just personally have found that people are so miserable. It's better to get it addressed so that then you can continue on with all of the other alternative options that you're choosing. Yeah. It can give you a little bit of a kickstart. So totally agree with that. Um, I did want to ask about the role of probiotics, both internally and externally. So there's a lot of um, skincare brands now that are doing probiotic creams and lotions. What are your thoughts on those? And I think we both really um, love Megaspore probiotic internally. Um, Obviously, again, depending on the person, but I've seen really great results um, for skin health, digestion, immunity, all of that. So give us your overview on the role of probiotics. Yeah, I I love probiotics as well. I use them in my practice. Um, You can use probiotics topically. You can use a Megaspore topically. and so that's, that can be something that can be helpful for some clients, especially if they're struggling with that dysbiosis. Um, so that's one thing that I can sometimes, a, a tool that I can reach for in the toolbox. As far as probiotics are concerned, there's, I think, so my feeling is that if you have, it depends on your digestion. <laughs> that's the thing. There's not like one probiotic. I think, I mean, Megaspore is a good one that most of the time, unless you're immunocompromised because of a medication that you're on. And even then, I don't know. I just try and I think like if you, if you're taking an immunosuppressant, that's sort of like a different yeah. zone. You have to mm-hmm. be careful with pretty much anything that you do. Um, so we're not necessarily speaking about someone in that particular boat, but as far as probiotics are concerned, if you're constipated, doing something with espalardi in it or saccharomyces boulardii is going to be real problematic because it's going to make you more constipated. But for someone who's got looser stools, that can be really great. It can also help support rebalancing uh, yeast overgrowth in the gut. Um, it can also increase secretory IgA, our immune response in the gut, if that is low, which you can see on stool tests. Um, I love Megaspore. You do have to go slow, low and slow <laughs> to get on that to make sure that you don't have a reaction to it because you can. Literally sprinkles of it. Yes. 
Yes. I always tell people, I'm like, start with a quarter capsule and then slowly step up every few days. And yes, you can add it to liquids. You won't Mm -hmm. taste it. I just don't put, don't put in anything hot. I don't think that that's a good idea. Um, as far as probiotics are concerned, um, it again, depends, but I love, like there's a lot of bifidobacterium strains that can be really helpful. Um, lactobacillus strains, um, if they are like a lactobacillus acidophilus, I'm just careful to not do high doses of that because excess lactobacillus acidophilus, certain lactobacillus strains produce lactic acid. It's actually D-lactic acid, not like, it's, a, it's sort of a mirror image of what our body produces. And so excess lactic acid production in the gut by gut bugs can actually cause you to have mood issues and headaches and all sorts of things. So I'm very cautious of that. I would never do, and I would never recommend someone run out and just do like 50 billion CFUs of a lactobacillus acidophilus. I think that's actually like a not a good move to make. So find something that's pretty balanced, um, like lactobacillus. I think it's cassi. I mean, how you pronounce all of these um, are is, is it can be a, a, quite humorous. Um, <laughs> lactobacillus rhamnosus can be really helpful. Um, I'm just trying to think. And, and I do like the spore-based probiotics in that they can make it through the GI tract and they're able to, at least from a megaspore perspective, they're able to kind of like support a reshaping of the microbiome community by up to about 40%. So that's a really nice piece. And you can use Megaspore whether you have diarrhea or constipation. So I, I think it's a really helpful, mm-hmm. you know, it's, a, it's definitely a helpful tool. Um, I think they go hand in hand. If there's overgrowth present, I'm probably less likely to initially use probiotics because I want to try to like it's sort of like taking a chainsaw to an overgrown backyard. <laughs> you know, you have to like kind of get in there and then and when we're able to go in and weed and tend to the garden beds and things of that nature, that's where I'm like, okay, let's bring back in some probiotics. Um, but I, they are really critical. They can be very helpful. Um, there's some really great research around moms to take probiotics uh, before pregnancy and then during pregnancy, reducing uh, eczema in, in their child um, and potentially considering probiotics for babies, but obviously you want to talk to your doctor or pediatrician first about that. Um, so yeah, I think they're, mm-hmm. they're a great tool. Me too. I love your analogies, by the way. <laughs> it's a great way. Like with, with science, you should be able to explain it to a five-year-old child. So you're doing right. a great job. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm a very, I'm very much a visual learner. I learned this about myself quite young and because my dad was a doctor, he would have these like, complex conversations with patients and then he'd leave the room and they'd be like, um, is he going to burn my eye? Cause he was an, <laughs> he was an ophthalmologist and eye doctor. And, and they, he was, he would say like, he was going to do a laser on their eye because of glaucoma or whatever. And I was like, no, no, no. It's like a light. It's just a light. It goes through the exterior surface. And so I learned how to really break things down for people at their level because one challenge that I find with conventional medicine is that so much is spoken to us at a knowledge level above our heads. We, like, a lot of people don't even know what amino acids are, that they're the building blocks of protein. So I, I really try to make sure that wherever someone is at, that I meet them there because ultimately I can't help them get more educated if I make things too difficult for someone to even sit with me at that table and have the discussion. And ultimately my goal is when a client leaves my, my, my clinic, I want them to be able to have a more educated discussion with their 
doctors and other practitioners that they may work with throughout their life, that they can ask more educated questions. And when they sit down and say, read a book or do something like watch a podcast or a video or whatever, that they could understand more complex terms. Because I think that gives you not only a sense of empowerment, but also it gives you a seat at the table for your health because not understanding what the conversation, like you can't take part. You're completely Mm -hmm. disengaged from the conversation. And so for me, I'm like, let's find analogies that help someone visualize what's happening because they are complex. Is it an exact replica of what's happening? No, but you get the idea. And um, it really also helps reduce reduce the level of stress and anxiety that someone may feel, you know, especially when you have a stool test or you have complicated testing and people are like, I don't know what any of this means. And I started to Google and I just can't, I just can't, this is too much. This is too much. I'm like, okay, let's slow <laughs> down. Let's start here. And I'm going to walk you through this so that you understand what this is saying. And yeah. by the end of that conversation, they're like, wow, I had no idea that this is what it says. I'm so grateful for this and to know what's wrong and to have a plan. Um, you just, I think that's, it's important to meet people where they are. Love that. Yeah. Cause it's stressful in itself having the skin rash yeah. every single day. Um, yep. So can we talk a little bit more about how stress affects the skin? And I do want to give the preface that I don't want you to stop becoming stressed about being stressed because that's a whole vicious cycle. Yes. So stress. So here's the thing with stress. Stress can come from external sources like traffic, your (laughs) in-laws, your pets or children that don't want to cooperate. Um, But it can also come from internal. So a lot of the things that we've discussed today, whether it's liver detox challenges, gut dysfunction, gut infections, whatever, those are internal stressors. They're things that you can't walk away from. And so that's another good point is to say, okay, I can't, I, you can't stress over being stressed, but what we can do is say, what can we do to better manage our stress? Because stress impacts our digestive capacity. It, it actually impacts so much that if we're chronically stressed, the body will not produce sufficient stomach acid because it thinks you're running from a tiger all of the time. Like if you're running from a tiger or the zombie apocalypse, you're not going to be like, oh, you know what? It's five o'clock. Let me sit down for some tea. Like that's not going to happen. Your body's going to be like, I need to get out of here. And because it needs to run all the time from something, whether it's the news, which 2020 has been quite a year um, and has caused a lot of stress and ungrounding for many people, no matter what country and place you live in. to all your work or maybe being out of work. Um, what you need to do is just find small times within your day to calm your system down. Um, I oftentimes recommend to my clients to do breathing exercises because A, they're free, B, they're easy to learn, and C, when you do them enough on a consistent basis, it becomes a habit. And so when you then are faced with, say, a fight with your spouse or your the principal is calling about your child's fight at school or something, you can tap into that. Because breathing exercises, and when we slow our breath down, it signals to our brain that we are safe. And that's the issue here, is not feeling safe. 
not feeling grounded. And so anything that you can do, whether it's taking a walk outside for 10 or 15 minutes, um, doing breathing exercises, even just like two minutes a day. And I tell people, I'm like, just set your alarm on your phone. Like, don't stress about like, how long is it going to be? And so what if your mind wanders? Who cares? That's not the point. It's a practice. It's not perfect. You know, I always say like, um, I used to play piano and it was piano practice. It wasn't piano perfect. So every time we practice, we're going to make mistakes. Our mind's going to wander. Books are going to fall. Cats are going to bang on the door. Whatever might happen. It's okay. Just go back to your center. Go back to the practice. See it through to the end. And as you can, and you're able to start to increase that to maybe five minutes, maybe add in some meditation or some prayer, whatever is appropriate for you, given your faith and background. Um, and try to also practice gratitude. I think this year has been, there are moments every single day. And I live in the United States, I should say that, <laughs> where I'm just like, what? Did that really happen? Is that, no. Am I being punked? Like, what? And I can't explain it, but that is the case. That is a reality that we are faced with. There are crazy things that happen here and all over the world. I don't want to discount that, but mm -hmm. you know, I live in the U.S. There's a lot of yep. crazy things happening here right now. And the year's not over yet. <laughs> year's not over. Um, and so one thing that I'm constantly reminded of is being grateful for the things that I can control. And I do have, like, I have a home. I have a roof over my head. I have my husband and my mother who are healthy. I have two beautiful nieces and that I have food that I have, you know, because there are people who don't have all of these things. There are people that are from war-torn countries that are dealing with, um, awful things going on right now in their countries that we can't even imagine and might not even know about. And I think the practice of gratitude helps us to be present, but it also helps to ground us. And like I was saying, this is such an ungrounding year. We have to, I think we've become very comfortable and overly comfortable with regiment and feeling like we can control everything. And personally, the lesson to me this year has been, I need to become more resilient and I need to become okay with the fact that one day is not going to look like the next. And I just have to maybe laugh it off <laughs> and move on. And I can't get stuck on it because otherwise we all, at least in the United States, people end up in screaming matches and it just doesn't serve anyone. And so for me, I'm like, you know what? I can only be present to so many things in my life and I want to focus on what's most important to me. So I hope that that's helpful, but stress is a huge component to this. And I also just want to say trauma um, can also happen to anybody. It's not just people who have, uh, I have clients that have come from Syria. So they've been from a, you know, a serious war-torn country, but I, and I've had clients that have been victims of sexual assault, but traumas don't always look like that. You know, I was, I was bullied as a child in school for many years. The trauma of the things that people said while they didn't physically harm me did last for a long time. Or maybe there was trauma because of some relationship with a parent or a sibling or a friend. And so I think we have to consider all of the different types of traumas that we may be carrying with us that have helped shape our worldview. And, and, and therapy can be a really helpful place to begin unpacking that so that you know, that's old programming. I look at it as like from a computer, it's like old Windows software. And I'm like, no, you know, I want to upgrade to the newer software. I want to have more control over the program that's being written. And so by really being able to face what's happening and do it in a safe way under the 
the, the guidance of a therapist can be incredibly powerful so you can let go of the things that aren't serving you and those worldviews and um, the ways we view ourselves in relation to other people that just aren't empowering anymore and see your, see your life in a different way. And with your clients, how frequently do you see those internal emotions, limiting beliefs, traumas manifesting in a skin condition? So is there ever an example where it's not the diet at all, the gut's pretty healthy, but it's just, it's just chronic long-term suppressed emotions? So not super often in my clients, but my sampling is not the world. So there have been cases of, um, I, I read one article, it was published in Harvard's it's published on their website and I could certainly share the link with you if you want to put it up. There was a journalist who had eczema since she was very young. She was tasked with reviewing information and data on a, a, a complementary medicine study, this huge study that was done on the effects of trauma. And so as she was doing this, she realized she had a lot of health issues. Eczema was just one piece of them and her father had died in an, uh, during an operation when she was 12. And so, you know, look, people die, that happens. And I, I'm sure that's probably part of it. She, but for her, it ended up that that was a trauma that she had really not fully acknowledged. And when she started to actually unpack that was when she began to notice that a lot of her symptoms were beginning to go away. So there is actual, it sounds super woo-woo, and I actually interviewed someone who is an expert on this, and I went into the conversation like really skeptical, and then I was like, I got to find research to like debunk this person. And I couldn't find any. Yep. In fact, I found the research that she then talked about. And I was like, oh, okay, well, this is a thing, guys. <laughs> so I, I, that's why I, I think we, we want to have that tough guy, like, I'm going to muscle my way through it. That was in the past. But the truth of the matter is we carry those things with us. It's, and that's where I think, too, we, it is important to talk to your kids, especially if they have skin issues about being bullied, about how their interactions are with other people and whatnot, because it does leave a lasting impact on them. Um, those feelings of shame are really hard to get rid of. And as we get older, it's more, it can become more and more difficult to even acknowledge that they're there because you feel kind of almost dumb or stupid to still be like, why do I still, why am I still bothered by something that happened when I was like eight years old mm -hmm. or, you know, 14, but you are. Yeah, um, people compare like my traumas nowhere near as bad as my friends, so I can't. It's not exactly. not right for me to be um, thinking of this and worrying exactly. about this problem. But you are unique. I'm unique, and I can say that the trauma that I experienced of humiliation, shame, embarrassment, of being bullied day after day, and I can remember exactly who they are. There are some people that I still to this day I'm like I I'm not mad at you anymore, but I don't. I'm, I, I wish you well. I hope you have a good adult life, but I, I don't want to mm -hmm. have a friendship or a relationship with you. I can say hi to them um, and kind of move on. Um, I still have my own work to do. I'm not going to say I don't. I spent a lot, many years in therapy, um, but it is important to understand the boundaries that you need to draw and that that was before in the past and that you are not what those people have said to you. You're not that person. You're not the joke. 
you are not whatever they did, you know, and that's, that was something, that's my own work. And so, you know, whatever has come up, whether, you know, as I said, I've worked with clients that have a history of sexual assault and um, really serious traumas, you know, in those instances, I'm not qualified to have those conversations with them. And that's where I encourage them to go seek help with a therapist who, who is really trained to deal with that type of trauma. Um, But it is an important factor in, I think just overall, whatever you're dealing with, whether it's skin issues or not, it's an important factor to address. Definitely is. And what about on the skin healing journey? Because I'm sure it's like up and down. You feel like you're taking two steps forward, three steps back sometimes. How would you kind of coach your clients through that? And are there any things that they can do on the days that they're flurring, they're feeling discouraged, they're not motivated? Like what can they do to get, get them through that? That is a good question. Um, so the first thing I would say is before you start doing anything, you really need to prepare the body. Preparation is so important with anything, right? We don't just like show up at college or at university. Like we get the books, we get ready to go. We have all of our assignments or whatever. We buy supplies and it's the same with your body. So if you're going to be going into something where you know, like for example, you have gut dysbiosis or whatever, you need to work on your elimination pathways, right? So that's where the gut function comes in, liver detox comes in, because these are all elimination pathways, making sure if you can, sometimes sweating works for some people, sometimes it doesn't for others. If you have mast cell issues, sometimes heat can make it worse. Yep. So it's, it's, you have to do what's within your comfort zone. Um, you know, as far as lymphatic drainage is concerned, you can do rebounding, dry brushing, even sun salutations for anyone here who's familiar with yoga. You don't even have to go into like the whole warrior one, warrior two thing. You can just do the sun salutations and those are actually <laughs> meant to stimulate the lymphatic system. So there, I encourage clients to do all of that. I think the other piece too is to know that setbacks happen. It does. We can't control what you come in contact with. Uh, We can't control how your body is going to decide to react. I will say this to me as a a practitioner, if you start to start a protocol and you begin to flare, it's a sign something was missed. Either it's the wrong formula, it's too much, so your body can't handle it, or your body wasn't prepared correctly. I, I, I understand to some degree that we can sometimes have some Herxheimer type reactions or detoxing, but I I also have concern that there is almost this like badge of honor some people think in that, oh, well, I'm just, I'm detoxing. I've been detoxing for two months. I'm like, isn't that awful? Because my clients are busy. They don't want to go through that. My clients want to know almost nothing is happening, just that they're slowly starting to feel better. That makes them happy because they need to maintain their busy life. They're executives. They're, they have really busy schedules and kids. They don't have time for that. Um, and so I think preparation is really important. Um, also finding support. So being, so you could be in a support group, you could be in a Facebook group, but again, making sure that the group is positive, um, doing your gratitude work, doing your stress management, but also if you don't believe that you can get better, that's a huge hurdle in and of itself. As soon as someone says to me, cause I'll say, what do you ultimately want to do? And if they say, 
well, I just want to learn how to better manage my skin. I'm like, you're not a right, you're not the right candidate for this because you're looking for band-aids. You don't have the belief that it's possible to improve. And and that's kind of a sad state of mind, but that's where conventional medicine has, mm-hmm. has pinned us into because all of the therapies are generally based around the concept that we're just managing symptoms. So there's that. Now, should you expect to be a hundred percent better? Depends. Some people might, some people might not be. Um, some people may get a better quality of life where they have a few eczema patches that'll flare up here and there, but they know how to get them under control and it's not a big deal. And to them, they're like, this is great. There's other people who do fully heal. There's other people who have really complex long roads ahead because of mold and whatnot. Um, I think it's important to have people to talk to. You talk to the right people, have a support system around you. That is really critical. Um, And to reach out for help. When you're struggling, the last thing to do is to go inside and hide. You have to, whether it's your practitioner that you're working with or friends that really are empathetic, they don't have sympathy for you. They don't feel bad for you. They're empathetic of what you're going through and they can just sit there and hold space you don't need, you're not asking for, and you can also be really clear with people. Look, I'm not asking for you to solve this problem for me. I just want to share what I'm feeling right now so that it doesn't stay inside of me because those emotions are also toxic. The emotional release of letting things go is also a, I consider to be a detox pathway. So it's equally important to acknowledge where you are. If you want to cry, cry. Have a cry. It's important. Um, I'd like to set time limits. I'd like to say, okay, I can be upset for an hour, <laughs> and then I've got to move on with things because it is really easy to get stuck in a in a pattern that is unhealthy. And I'd also warn people against toxic positivity of just trying to say, I'm sure this is happening for a reason. I'm sure it'll get better. You know, I'm just not doing something right. I need to just like tune in. I'm sure it'll come. The answer will come to me and I've got to be positive and everything's wonderful. When you really are not feeling that way, that's, that is being out of sync with, you know, it's one thing to be positive and to say, I know that I'm heading in the right direction. I'm just not feeling well right now. There is nothing wrong with having that statement be true. It doesn't mean you're being a Debbie Downer or negative. It's just that's the truth. It's another thing to constantly believe that everything's just going to be fine, even though it it isn't. And just keep saying these things because you feel like at some point you will believe them if you repeat them enough. That's toxic. And um, I think that that's the place of saying, okay, how can we be honest? How can we have honest conversations? Let the emotions out and then let them go. And just be present to what is, because we oftentimes are, are not able to hold ourselves in the space of a hurting child. Like, right? Your child comes to you and you're like, oh, honey, let you console your child. We can't do that for ourselves a lot of times when we're really struggling. And so that's where having the support system or someone you can go to, someone you can talk to who just hears you, who just sees you, that's it. They're not giving you solutions, um, can be incredibly powerful on your journey. I know what people are wondering, like, how long. On average, how long does it take, taking into consideration like the skin maybe taking 30 days to regenerate and how complex the case is? But what have you seen? Like what kind of timeline are we talking about here? Months, weeks, or years? 
So for somebody who might just have like an allergy to eggs, (laughs) taking it out might be the solution. Great. Um, That's not the case for my clients. They've usually tried a lot of stuff and they've been struggling a long time. Um, So depending on the complexity of the case, if it's fairly straightforward, it could take anywhere from about four to maybe six months. If it's really complex and there's a lot wrong and you are incredibly nutrient depleted and you've got a lot of microbiome issues and infections and hidden things going on, and especially if mast cells get involved, you're probably looking at a year, year and a half, maybe two years. It takes time. You know, sometimes too, when we start with histamine overload and we get into this place where mast cells are really unstabilized you can only go so fast. You can only do so much because your body can't stand, you know, like I have a client who even just going outside in the heat causes this huge flare of hives. So just her environment is a problem. Putting on clothes that have elastic bands causes hives. She's very, very sensitive. And when you try to do anything. If we go too much, she gets a flare of interstitial cystitis. So you know, like that's not everyone. That's a really complicated case. So I think it's important to, you know, if you, if you're really struggling, get help and ask the practitioner you're working with, how long do you really foresee this taking? Because if you think it's going to take three months and you mentally prepare yourself for three months or a month, cause you read that online or Sally's story of like two weeks, what happens at month four? or month five, or month nine, or month 11, and where you are somewhat better, but not 100%, it's really easy to throw in the towel. I find, and I do have male clients, I do find that female clients tend to have more gusto to keep pushing forward. Men, I don't know why, seem to burn out around like five months, five, six months, where they're just like, okay, I've done it (laughs) <laughs> um, women tend to be more motivated when it comes to their health. Um, that is a worldwide phenomenon and it's quite well known. Um, and you know, everyone has their tolerance of what they're willing to do and try. And I think we just have to respect people for their, their own personal decisions because it's ultimately their journey, but it is, it is a long journey. Um, if you've been sick for a long time, if you've had eczema since birth or psoriasis since you were 14 years old, it's not going to be overnight that it's likely going to clear up. And if it does, if it does happen sooner, awesome. I'm thrilled. But I think it's better to think this is going to be a commitment of time. It's going to take a while. It's going to require probably a bunch of different changes on my part. um, And I have to be prepared for that. Yeah. And all the things that you do and learn about your body in that process is going to help your health in the long run. So yep. maybe you're struggling with chronic eczema now, but the changes that you've made to your diet and the improvements to your gut health are going to help with reduction of maybe cancer risk in the future, diseases, mm-hmm. um, diabetes. So it is a struggle, especially the younger people. Um, like my health journey started when I was like 18. So mm-hmm. I was like not able to go out and see friends. I was pretty isolated at home with my parents and I was really feeling miserable and depressed um, obviously with that whole situation, but now it's kind of put me on my path and I see the silver lining, but when you're in it and it's constant and it's a struggle, you really don't see that. But again, we both went through what we went through to 
follow our, our passion. And for a lot of other people, it's not to be a practitioner or to help other people directly with their health, but maybe it's to influence your children or be a better partner or friend. So. Absolutely. And the other thing too, to keep in mind, regardless of what you're dealing with, this is an investment, what you do. And, and I'm not necessarily saying working with someone, like just anything, whether you change your diet or you start exercising and getting moving, or you start taking certain supplements that are appropriate for your particular situation, whatever you choose to do, it's all an investment in quality of life long-term. That's how I like to look at it because from having worked at my father's medical practice, for about 12 years, people were in their 60s, 70s, 80s, sometimes 90s. And all they did, at least in the United States, was go to the doctor. They had a huge laundry list of medications that were very expensive and they didn't feel well. That's all they did. They would go and sit in waiting rooms, watching TVs to go sit back, talk to the doctor, go home and sit in front of the TV. That mm -hmm. became their entire life. And they would tell me over and over again, this is not the golden years. You are in the golden years. The golden years when, that we speak of, this is a lie because this is not a good quality of life. So to me, that was a really, it was a wake-up call early on in my 20s to recognize that the more we ignore our bodies now, all the symptoms, right? It's, it, we can say, oh, this is really annoying, this itching or scratching or the headaches that I get. It's annoying. It con you know, I, don't, I don't want them. They're just annoyances. They're your body's way of communicating with you. You might, you know, we don't like hit our nose and a tape spits out and tells us what the problem is. It shows up in ways that like are essentially could be annoying, painful, what have you. But those are things that your body's trying to communicate to you. And the more we push that off, at a certain point, balls begin to drop and more stuff begins to break. And then it becomes more complicated. So the work that you do now, if you're not feeling well, this is an investment in having a good, hopefully a good quality of life as we age. So that to me is the bigger piece of the puzzle. I always tell, they're like, I have these skin issues, but I also have all these other issues. And I'm like, you're one person. To me, I want to know about it all because this is your body and we're, we're, we're getting to understand how to communicate with it because we were never taught. There's no manual. Um, and so I would just encourage you anytime you go, I don't know enough. I don't have enough money or whatever. Make a goal. Set a goal. Figure it out. Everything is doable if you put your mind to it and realize that it is an investment that you're never going to get you can't get it back mm -hmm. if you don't do it. It's not like you can make up for it. My uncle on, in his dying bed had all the money in the world and he had one leg amputated and then was going to have the second one because of diabetes and renal failure. And he said to me, he said, flat out, Jen, there's no amount of money I could pay right now that would help me get out of bed and walk to the other side of the room. He's mm -hmm. like, I can't do it. I cannot, I, I can't, I would pay anything and I literally can't pay a dime. And that really stuck with me. So realize that any steps you take now are an investment in your future. Um, so Very true. And I wanted to ask with your own personal health journey, what were the key things that ultimately um, kind of helped to resolve your skin issues? And did you find that the headaches and the digestive issues that you had, everything, I'm guessing yes, but was everything connected? Yes. Um, so initially it was gluten, dairy, and eggs. The nutritionist that I worked with many years ago didn't really dive deeper than that. So I didn't know if I had any gut microbiome issues. That wasn't something until I learned until later on. So changing my diet and getting rid of the junk, 
uh, was really helpful, made a huge improvement in my quality of life and how I felt. I will say now I'm still kind of going through the process of dealing with some um, gut issues. I had uh, two infections that I found in a stool test after my eczema flare last year. Um, and I had some really severe like upper right quadrant pain that happened, started after the eczema flare. <laughs> And so it turned out that I had these two uh, bacteria, um, bacterial infections that were lingering under the surface. And so I've been working on that. I have an, another stool test. I'm going to be doing a, a retest after doing, I did end up doing antibiotics, which made a huge improvement in the, the, the severity of that, those painful um, incidents because they were really de like utterly debilitating. Um, and then I've been working on antimicrobials since then. So um, I would say testing has been incredibly helpful because it. I don't want to guess anymore. I've spent too long in my life just guessing. Um, I don't. I also will say this. I don't think that food sensitivity testing is very helpful. I think if you're going to spend the money on it, get a comprehensive stool test because the food doesn't cause the problems. The food interacts with a microbiome that's messed up, and then you have problems. The microbiome is ultimately what can drive uh, gut permeability or leakiness through the gut. So it's it's just a more valuable test and looking at blood markers and things of that nature. So I think testing is one of the biggest things now I realize it's so much more valuable than just saying, I'm just going to keep messing with my diet. I'm like, don't you just want to have some answers? <laughs> yeah. The food isn't the problem. Your body is probably the problem. Yeah. Yeah. So with another, some of the tests are like very expensive. Are there any functional or private lab tests that you like? And are there any insurance covered ones, any basic blood work that could be useful in giving us some clues? Yeah. So there's a lot of basic blood work that can be useful. I, ask for a lot of very common blood labs like a CBC or a fasted CMP, lipids, B12, D, A, like those vitamins are really important, folate. Um, depending on the case, like sometimes if someone, if you suspect a lot of like histamine issues, a total IgE can be really helpful. Um, you know, I prefer the red blood cell or erythrocyte values for minerals like magnesium, zinc, and selenium. Um, a full thyroid panel, I think is really important. I can't tell you how many times, especially with psoriasis, the person's thyroid is really off. So if you're really struggling with psoriasis, you need to get your, your thyroid checked. There's a huge connection between low thyroid and psoriasis. Also liver issues as well. So, I mean, obviously having a, a liver panel to look at the liver enzymes is important. Um, but yeah, so all those labs, I actually have an article on my website of the labs I usually ask. But then as far as um, functional testing, I, I use a GI map. I usually recommend that. Um, an organic acid panel, a urine test I'll sometimes run. I prefer the one through Genova. Um, I've had a few clients that have had the mycotoxin testing done, but I don't really work with mycotoxins. So that's not, I feel like that's kind of outside of my scope yeah. of practice. Um, and that's for the most part, pretty much it. Sometimes we'll do a Dutch test. A Dutch test can be really helpful, but it's never the first test I ever run because usually if the, the fun, okay. foundational things, remember that pyramid we were talking about, the foundational issues are off, then why spend the money right now on a test that results will change as a result of all the foundational things we'll do. So I rather wait for um, down the road to do that so yeah I'm always stressing that point I say hormones are like the tip of the iceberg yep. um and they're the, the kind of the 
result of a deeper issue like yeah. what's underneath the surface yep. and totally agree liver gut always yep <laughs> yep you have first. to yes exactly thank you <laughs> <laughs> not the only one yeah if you don't start there um you know and it doesn't it's just you have to prepare the i can't stress this enough if you have skin issues do not just say i'm taking glutamine <laughs> I'm going to heal my leaky gut. Well, you can't heal your leaky gut if you don't deal with what's actually causing it to be leaky. So taking, I think, frankly, I'm going to say this, it's a little controversial, but I think L-glutamine is a waste of money to mm-hmm. if you're going to buy a supplement. Yeah, it made me, that was like one of the first things I added in after quite very high dose because the blog that I was reading yes. recommended like teaspoons worth. Yes. I had um, severe insomnia irritability my brain was like inflamed and on fire i really realized i had like a huge issue with glutamine and msg Mm. Um, i had a seizure last year from eating thai food with msg in there so that was not a good fit for me and it's just kind of yeah it's not going to work if you have a chronic SIBO parasite no and i find too um with uh this was from years of of working with some SIBO type clients that a lot of times it makes it worse yeah. and they feel worse. So I don't recommend L-glutamine. If you, if you, if anyone's listening and they're taking <laughs> L-glutamine because they're healing their leaky gut, I think it's fine for people that aren't sensitive to it. If it's a part of a formula, but yeah. once you've dealt with the triggers, exactly. not during, it's your waste of money. So the thing you want to do is get glycine powder. That's what you want to buy. Mm-hmm. That's an amino acid that is slightly sweet and you can add it to a little bit of water. I usually recommend that people take anywhere from like a teaspoon to a teaspoon and a half once. If your skin's really bad, I'd say twice a day. Um, and that at least is getting glycine into your system. And then with B6, you have to be careful because too much B6 can be a problem. So if you look at your supplement anywhere from like five to maybe 10 milligrams a day. Beyond that, you really want to talk to a practitioner, like 50 milligrams. Somebody asked me yesterday, is 50 milligrams okay? I was like, that's a lot of B6. I would not recommend that. Um, So yes, you can get these nutrients from food, but you have to remember if your microbiome is compromised, your digestion and absorption may be compromised, making it difficult to absorb nutrients. And if if you're currently at a deficit, you have to take in what you need for the day and then a whole lot more. And so that's where the benefit of having some supplementation can come in is to help refill the wells. So that way the body can reduce stress, right? Because not having nutrients causes stress. And then we can start actually handling the things that the body needs to be done. It'll handle the most critical things and then those nutrients spread out to the other areas and we can start, ultimately the goal is to rebuild healthy skin but you can't do that if your thyroid's struggling, if you know you have these infections or whatever. Um, so we need to refill the wells and make sure that the body has the nutrients that it needs in order to make healthy cells and all sorts of things. Absolutely. Well, I could talk to you for three more hours and I think people listening, they're like, oh my God, everything's so interconnected. And I think they knew that already, but again, because of conventional medicine, everything's so separated, the yeah. dermatology, endocrinology, gastroenterology, we're kind of bringing it all together. That's part of the reason I love my job is because I feel like a detective. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. I, I think, I think too, I had a client earlier this week. She goes, I have never been so excited to get the results of a stool test. 
We're both like she, excited when someone has a parasite. Yes. Yay. She's like, I have answers now. Like it, how great to, would that feel if, if every time you go to the doctors and they're like, yeah, you look fine. And you're like, but I don't feel fine. Something must be wrong. No, but everything looks fine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to finally have testing or a way to look at the test, right? So I do look at conventional values, but I look at them from a, a more optimal range. And I also look at them from my clinical nutrition range so that they can show there can be patterns. It's not always just like one thing. And so we can look at that whole picture and say, okay, here's a, a bunch of different buckets, right? Or root causes that are going on. And here's the order in which we can start addressing them that they'll help fill other buckets. So it's not such a huge burden as we get further along into the journey. Um, and to have some answers and to have a clear plan instead of just being told, I don't know. You, you must just like, it must be your genes. Maybe it's in your family. It's hereditary. I don't know how that is like no. any, in any way, shape or form hope, hope giving. Cause it's yeah. not. You don't accept that as an answer <laughs> from anyone. Yeah. So there's always answers. It's just, you have to be willing to look and you have to find somebody that you feel is a good fit too. If you're going to dig, if you don't feel like, I'm not for everybody. I'm not going to lie. I'm not for everybody. Uh, it's okay. I mesh really well with certain personalities and we have great conversations and it's a lot of fun. Um, you want to find someone when you talk to them, you're excited and you really feel like they get you. Um, that's important. So if you're going to work with someone, you, it's not necessary that they be like the most famous. Find someone that you feel like you connect to. I don't know who wouldn't like you, Jennifer. You would it's, be the first person I'd go to. I, I have to. made some teenagers cry. Okay. <laughs> I am not, I work with very few teenagers. Uh, most of them, if I do work with them, they're like really like, okay, I want to do this. I'm, I follow directions. But once they like don't want to take action, I don't know why they cry on, on initial call. And I'm like, this is not a good fit. Um, and some people just like want very straightforward answers. And I can't always give that. Sometimes it does depend. And, mm -hmm. it, and I can't tell someone what to do either. I'm not the boss of your health. You're the boss. And so I give you options, but you have to make the decision. So if someone's really indecisive, and they just want to be told, like, that's probably also not a good fit. That's why I like to say, like, I'm a co-pilot with someone. We're in this together. I bring knowledge. You bring action. But you also have to make some decisions. I can help you make decisions. I could tell you what maybe I would do if I was in your shoes. But ultimately, you have to make those decisions for yourself. Yeah. And no one cares more about your health than you do. So you have to exactly. be your own best doctor in that mm -hmm. situation. I want to finish up with a few questions about you how you stay hormonally healthy. Um, and I know that with your skin, it's probably going to be a long-term thing that you have to be aware of and be mindful of and try and keep yourself healthy. So is there like one thing that you do every day to stay in hormonal harmony? Yes. Um, the one thing I do is I actually take a liver detox supplement that has amino acids. The reason I do is because if I don't, I get a lot of issues with PMS close to my menstrual cycle, and I will find that I'll break out quite a bit. So I found a few years ago, I mean, I'm now 40, so keep that in mind. <laughs> I'm 40. Things start to change. No one tells you this, but things start to change when you get to your mid-30s, by the way. So um, all this, forward to. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not like periods get heavier. Like all these things happen that everyone's like, oh, 
that's fine. It's normal. And I'm like, is this not normal? What are you talking about? So anyway, I found that really focusing more on liver detox was very helpful in balancing my hormones. I love broccoli sprouts. I can't always find them at the store. Um, I do try and do ground flaxseed. You just have to be careful. Like sometimes I oscillate between sort of like being a little more on the constipated side, a little more on the loose side. My, my history is more loose. So I have to watch with too much fiber and whatnot. And I still have gut issues that I'm resolving. <laughs> so the, the liver detox supplement daily is definitely my go-to. Interesting. And can you show the brand? Is it like a white way? Yeah. So it's a amino detox from designs for yes. health. Yeah. yeah. I know that one. Perfect. Yeah, you, you probably use that one. Exactly. <laughs> and is there one product, so maybe the same supplement, but is there anything else that you couldn't live without? Could be a topical skincare product. It could be a kitchen gadget. So for me, um, I use that Osmia black clay bar mm-hmm. soap on my face every day. Now, I didn't have eczema on my face. I wouldn't recommend it for somebody with eczema. Perioral dermatitis, it's apparently can be really helpful for. I have an issue where my my face produces excess amounts of oil. Like I will be so oily. I could like go like this at the end of the day and it's like an oil slick. Um, and as a result, it causes a lot of problems with my skin. So the black clay bar, and if you can't get the one from Osmia, you could certainly look for one at the store. But if you have an overproduction of oil, that can be really helpful in getting just a natural reduction of oil without having to use my dermatologist gave me some really harsh uh, facial wash and I used it once and I was like, oh my gosh, my face is like the Sahara Desert now. It's so dried out. It was like way too much. So the black clay, a black clay bar for your face, if you have too much oil, it can be a real game changer. But I think the oiliness is working to your advantage because you don't look faulty. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. But, but um, yeah, I, I had to have uh, large pores, sebaceous glands that had, right. had risen yeah. up, um, burned off my face. Oh, it was lovely. very painful multiple <laughs> times. So I'm trying to avoid that. <laughs> so the black clay bar was like the game changer in helping to not have that happen anymore. Okay. So there's that. It might be a game changer for someone else. So I'll definitely link that in the show notes. Is there a book that you want to recommend? So something on um, diet or skin health? I do. So it's this book called The Eczema Relief Diet and Cookbook. It's by my friend, Krista Bigler. She's a dietitian. We're very good friends. And her book came out this year in 2020. I think if you're going to start anywhere, if you have eczema, if you're going to start anywhere, I think this would be a better book to start with than a lot of the other eczema type diet books out mm-hmm. there, just simply because it's very balanced. She's very practical. Um, and she has, you'll learn a ton about eczema from the perspective, like Kristen and I talk all the time. She's yeah. really brilliant. And um, I think that would be a good basis for anybody. Yeah. And you've got tons of resources on your website, your mm-hmm. Instagram, you've yes. got guides. So I'm going to link to the relevant ones in the episode show notes, but can you tell us where people can find more from you? Yes. So I, my website is skinterrupt.com. Uh, the healthy skin show is my podcast. There's over 160 episodes. So there's wow. a ton of information and if you go to Skinterrupt, there's actually a drop-down menu where you can pick what skin condition you have. We have some information on that. And then the 
relevant podcasts and mm-hmm. articles are linked at the bottom. So you can scroll through and it makes it a little easier, but you can also search. We have a search feature as well. And um, I am on Instagram. And I'm also on TikTok as well (laughs) and, you know, Facebook and Pinterest. But I'm most, I would say if you want to really see the most educational information, I would say probably Instagram for me would be the number one spot to go check out. Yeah, and definitely scroll back through all of your posts because it's it's like a goldmine of information. I'm even learning stuff from you. So thank you so much for being such an amazing resource. You're so fun and I love learning from you. So thank you so much, Jennifer. This has been amazing. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I wish everyone who's listening that you find your root causes and your solutions. Keep going. Don't give up hope. You're not, you're not broken. You're not damaged. You're not any of those negative things. Just keep on going. There is a solution and an answer out there for you. Perfect. Thank you so much. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and you would love a free copy of my hormone-friendly recipes guide, please leave me a rating and review and I will email you a copy as a thank you gift. All you need to do is screenshot your rating and review and send it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. This guide contains delicious gluten, dairy, grain and refined sugar-free recipes and all the meals contain specific hormone superfoods. Don't worry, there are no boring salad recipes included. Come and say hi over on Instagram at Viva Natural Health as I share a ton of free content every day and you can get to know more about me and how I stay hormonally healthy. If you haven't already, check out my website, vivanaturalhealth.co.uk for my blog and many free guides which cover everything from clearing acne to gut health and hair loss. If you're ready to identify and address the root causes of your hormonal issues, whether that's acne, PMS, PCOS, hair loss or problematic periods, Take that first step today and apply for an enrollment call on my website. We'll use this call to discuss the steps that you need to take in order to achieve hormonal harmony and how I could help you get there. See you back here next week for another episode.